Hey everyone, this is your host Asad Badruddin for the Stablecoin podcast and today we have Kane Warwick from Haven. Kane, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So before we get into a little bit of Haven's model, we'd love to hear about your story. I know you've done, I looked over your LinkedIn before this podcast and I know you've done some really interesting stuff. So if you could, for our listeners, just maybe give us an arc of how your career has evolved and how you've got to where you are now. Sure. So it's actually something I've been thinking about a little bit of last uh, week because I've got a, a presentation at a conference uh, down in Melbourne to kind of go over the same uh, arc. So it's, uh, it's kind of fresh on my mind. Uh, some of it fades with age, unfortunately. But uh, so I, I moved, I dropped out of university. I moved to Seattle in the early 2000s. I had a, a friend of mine um, who was working at a startup and they were looking to hire some people and it seemed like a, an interesting idea. So I moved over there. I lived there for like a year and a half. Fortunately, this is right around the time of the you know, dot-com crash. So funding kind of dried up before they were able to, to raise a, a large round. And you know, we, we kind of pivoted a couple of times, but it was a really interesting experience to kind of see that, that process play out uh, in real time without you know, uh, obviously having a, a massive amount of skin in the game because it wasn't my company. I was just working there. Uh, but you know, there, was, there was a lot of lessons that I, that I took out of that experience. And then I went back to school in the States. I was there for a little while in, uh, in the Bay Area, in San Jose. Uh, and then I ended up moving to Boston. I started a band with a friend of mine, which was something that I wanted to do for a long time. And then from, uh, from there, I, I decided after uh, a few years that I wanted to uh, move back to Australia. So I moved back and started a company with a friend of mine, uh, which was like an online retail business. Uh, unfortunately, in Australia, you know, one of the challenges we have is um, early stage funding is is quite difficult, and so you know we we were able to raise a small round, a seed round, and you know kind of get the business uh, up and running, but um, we weren't really able to kind of scale up funding to to grow the business. Um, so we ended up essentially selling the IP to the people who uh, had initially invested, and you know they were running an e-commerce business, and we just kind of uh, mothballed it pretty much, and then. From there, I started another online retail business, uh, which unfortunately, you know, as we were discussing before we started, I uh, was impacted by the shifting exchange rates, uh, funnily enough. So, you know, the Australian dollar used to trade uh, well above par. Um, and at that time, there was a kind of arbitrage play of importing uh, goods from the US and selling them in Australia because it was quite a bit cheaper. But the Australian dollar eventually uh, dropped below par again, and that made that business challenging to, to operate. So we ended up scaling it back there's still a couple of the lines that we sold that uh that were still selling uh like guitar strings and, and stuff like that but but unfortunately it was just you know uh, i guess an example of poor supply chain uh management and not really having the ability to scale but it was also impacted again by early stage funding so in 2014 we shut that down and then i was approached by a friend of mine who said that they were looking to start the startup and you know he had a, an investor that was interested in investing and i said you know i'm not really interested in in running a startup, you know, in the short term, I just wrapped up another one, uh, unless it was really clear that there was going to be significant funding available to scale the business up. So I went and met the investor and, and uh, he's kind of a co-founder of mine. Um, and this is for Blue Shift. So in 2014, we launched that. We were able to secure a number of high profile initial contracts with, you know, people like Ladbrokes and TNT. And that kind of gave us the initial seed money to really grow the business quickly. And so we're still running that business. It's, it's going really well. We've got you know, a bunch of customers. We're probably the largest fiat to crypto gateway in Australia. 
and then uh, about you know a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, uh, I decided to launch Haven, uh, which is a, a stable coin. So you know, being in the crypto space since since 2014 and being an investor and a trader, I saw an opportunity for a decentralized stable coin, and I I thought that you know as decentralized platforms started to grow, that there would be more need for uh, a stable asset that people could use as a payment method within uh, those platforms. So that's kind of how we got to here. Uh, and then, so I, I'd love to dig into Haven in a, in a bit, but I'm curious. So you had this musical career that you started off with. Is there anything that you learned there that you're applying right now to your, to your current company or to Haven? I mean, you know, being in a band is a little bit like, you know, being in an early stage startup, right? There's, there's a lot of uh, noise. There's a lot of competition and, you know, you, uh, you need to, build relationships with venues and you need to build, you know, relationships with listeners. So, you know, from a marketing perspective and, and how to kind of manage that, it was a really interesting experience because, you know, it's kind of a, a I guess, a, a bit of a different industry to be in, but, you know, being in a, a small band, you kind of have to do everything yourself. And so, you know, I was sort of responsible for all the marketing and distribution and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, there are a lot of takeaways, I think, from that experience that, uh, that were super valuable. That's really interesting. Um, all right. So I, yeah, let's dig into Haven then. So could you, sure. for our listeners, talk about the model behind Haven and how you keep a stable currency, how you, keep, how you create a stable price? For sure. So, so maybe just to step back quickly and, and kind of outline uh, for any listeners who are not super uh, familiar you know, we sort of see the space having three categories. Uh, fiat coins like Tether and TrueUSD, et cetera, that are just backed by fiat in a bank. Uh, on-chain uh, collateral-backed solutions like us and uh, DAI and a few others that are that are coming online now. And then a third category, which is like algorithmic stable coins like Basis, uh, Fragments, et cetera. So those, those are kind of the three categories. And my view personally, as I was sort of doing research into how to solve this problem was that, you know, the off-chain assets like Tether, you know, the fiat coins were a, a solid pragmatic solution in the interim, you know, when, when there wasn't an alternative, but ultimately were kind of a dead end, you know, for, for a crypto platform to be able to support, you know, stable payments and be decentralized, it can't have this centralized attack vector that's, you know, powering the, the transactions within it. And so, you know, obviously for trading and things like that, you know, Tether and, and those, those types of coins are are pretty good uh but for actual you know uh, decentralized insurance or you know prediction markets things like that uh they're not really viable in my opinion and so we were trying to work out how can we build something that is going to be stable that will be uh fully on chain so it won't rely on you know any real world asset to back it and will also be scalable and that's it's an interesting sort of question when you get to the scalability side of things, right? Because, you know, really at the moment, there's kind of only Maker and us as, you know, decentralized stablecoin solutions. I mean, BitShares has been around for a long time, but hasn't really been able to scale beyond its own chain. And so my view was that the, the model that DAI used to scale, which was this idea of, you know, decentralized leverage against ETH, was going to be challenging, right, to, to scale. And this is, you know, before multilateral DAI and, you know, some of the other tweaks that they've introduced in the system. But my view was that you needed to have a very clear alignment between the utility that users of the stablecoin were getting and 
the scalability of the system. So if you if people were providing a service, if people were uh, going to provide stability to users, they needed to be paid for it. They needed some sort of payment or, or compensation for putting capital at risk and, and doing that thing. And the most direct alignment between that uh, process was going to be to charge fees. And so coming from an online retail background, something that was, uh, I guess, probably uh, an area that I understood fairly well was you know, payment gateways and, and payment systems like PayPal and Visa MasterCard and, and all the different payment gateways and, and various other things. And so I, I kind of looked at that and said, would there be a way that you could take something like PayPal, a closed loop payment network, uh, and decentralize it? What are the elements that you could you know, rip out uh, that are centralized and still maintain that functionality? And so what we came up with is if you charged fees as users transacted, so every time a transaction happens, just like PayPal, transaction fee is charged, and you paid those fees into a pool that were then used to compensate uh, the, the collateral holders, the haven holders, which is our, our second token, that you'd be able to build this system that was fully on-chain and also scalable because as demand for the stablecoin grew, fees would increase. Uh, like any closed payment network, you'd, you'd have this you know, very strong network effect and stickiness. And that was ultimately where we landed. It took quite a while to kind of nail the mechanism and there's some sort of secondary and tertiary mechanisms that are uh, involved in actually stabilizing the coin and, and some of the things around incentives. But fundamentally, that's kind of what it boils down to is, you know, use an on-chain asset that derives its value from fees, you know, in the same way that sort of PayPal uh, shares derive their value from the revenue yield within the network. So you've got this this payment that's being paid to people who are providing a, a service. And the, the collateral token is this sort of participatory right to engage with the network and collect those fees and put capital at risk, et cetera. So I have a question about that. In PayPal's case, there's a payment gateway where you, that you used to make a transaction and that's how the transaction fees get taken out, right? Yep. What kind of, are you building a similar infrastructure? So interestingly, uh, and this is you know one of the nice things about Ethereum and and you know smart contract systems, you can actually build the entire infrastructure of payment collection and distribution into the smart contract suite. So what happens when someone transfers a token is the smart contracts themselves on the transfer collect those fees and send it to a pool, and then the uh, the haven holders can go and collect the fees from that pool. And none of this requires centralization; it's all built into uh, the smart contract suite and, and is completely decentralized. Interesting. And this might be an un, uninformed question, but uh, users have to use those set of smart contracts. Can they not create an alternative set of smart contracts to make these transactions without the fees? So there's a, there's a kind of an attack vector uh, called ERC20 token wrapping. Right. So the idea would be that you could take our uh, ERC20 token and wrap it in another contract and therefore avoid the fees. Uh, we think that's not that likely for a couple of reasons. One, you need to trust the, uh, the entity that's creating this wrapping contract. So let's say you, you come out and you say, OK, you know, you're using NUSD, which is a stable coin. You know, you really like it. Well, I've got a better version of it, uh, which I basically wrapped in this smart contract. The person who's then going to use that needs to trust you is the first thing. The second thing is that all of the efforts to get NUSD integrated into various systems need to be replicated with this wrapped smart contract now. 
Um, so there's a fair amount of, of kind of overhead and effort that you would need to go to. And, you know, in the short term, we just don't think it's that credible. By the time we've got strong network effects and, and usability for the small fee that we charge, you know, 15 basis points, so 0.15%, the average user is not going to walk at that and, and you know, be worried about it. That said, you know, off-chain transactions. So for example, transactions that happen on, on say KuCoin. So we've got a fair amount of trading volume on KuCoin on a daily basis. Those transactions happen off-chain and therefore don't accrue fees. So it's only the deposits in and out of KuCoin that accrue fees. So there's already a little bit of sort of fee leakage, if you will, uh, built into the system. And, and that's kind of okay. We've, we've modeled it with the expectation that not every transfer, because they're not all going to be on-chain, will collect fees. Cool. And then I have a question, but I, I, I just realized it needs explanation before we get there. C- could you, for our listeners, sort of draw the distinction out between Haven shares and NUSD and their relationship? Yeah, so the Haven token, uh, which is the collateral token, is essentially the ability to participate in this network. So if you're a Haven holder, you have the ability to lock the Haven token in a smart contract and issue NUSD to stablecoin against it. For providing that service, you know, for, for holding that capital and, and taking that risk, uh, you're paid your proportion of the fees. And all of this is, is kind of distributed, right? So you've got this, rather than having a centralized pool of collateral like you do with a, a fiat coin where someone has to administer a bank, in this case, everyone individually is, is administering the collateral, is maintaining their own collateral pool, and they're responsible for maintaining the collateralization ratio of their own, uh, their own wallet, essentially. If you want to participate in the system, you go and buy Haven tokens, you lock them up using a tool that we've built called Minter, and then you mint NUSD, which you then put out into the market and allow people to transact. And as they transact, you get fees. So that's, the, that's kind of the relationship between the two. Essentially, NUSD is like a, a sort of right or a claim on the Haven tokens. Got it. And you have a really cool visual that demonstrates this. And one of my questions was, you know, if someone does mint NUSD and they're sort of, it's sent to an NUSD pool, right? Who, who owns that pool? Uh, that's a good question. So, so when you send it to the pool, there's a couple of things that can happen. One, you can just mint NUSD and hold it yourself and sell it on KuCoin or, or you know, um, sell it directly to someone. You can sell it on Dether or you know, local Bitcoins or something like that. Or you can put it into a contract we call the depot contract, which essentially is like a, a dark pool. So you send your NUSD into that pool and it puts you into a queue. And then as people come and purchase NUSD for ETH, you get your uh, portion as you uh, sort of advance in the queue. Uh, so the idea is to make it as easy as possible for you to put NUSD into circulation, essentially. Cool. And if someone buys NUSD in return for Ether, so can you yep. then spend that Ether? It's your Ether? Correct. Yeah, that's yours. So the only obligation you have, obviously, is that if you want to get out of the network, you need to get the same amount of NUSD that you originally minted and burn that in order to unlock your havens. So, you know, it's a little bit like Maker where you're kind of borrowing against your, uh, your haven pool. And in order to get out of the network, if you want to you know, sell your havens or move them, you need to replace that debt that you've created um, and burn the NUSD. And so that's the way that we ensure that the pool is always over collateralized and that we don't have a, a risk of a price shock uh, undermining the system. 
Got it. And the fees payout that you get, is it on the 20% collateral or the non-collateral part? It's on your proportion of NUSD that you've minted. So if you imagine a scenario where uh, there's $1,000 worth of fees to be collected, and you and I both have 50% of the network, 50% of the NUSD that's been issued, then we will get $50 of the fees each. If, for example, I had issued 80 NUSD and you had issued 20, then I would get 80% of the fees. So it's based on how much NUSD you've issued, essentially. Got it. And what's my incentive to take NUSD out of the system? Or, or, or re- so let's... So, so the, the immediate incentive, assuming we're not in the middle of a price shock or something like that, is that you want to sell your havens or you want to, to move them or whatever, right? So because we maintain a 500% collateralization ratio, so where it's five to one between the collateral and the, uh, the stable coin, if you want to get out of the system, you've got more value in havens than you do in NUSD. So you would buy back that 20% of NUSD that you've issued, you'd burn it, and then you'd be able to move your havens again. But in a, a more edge case scenario, where let's say the price is dropping, what would happen is your collateralization ratio will drop, right? So you'll go from 500%, which is the ideal ratio that we're targeting, to maybe 300% or even 250%. And as your collateralization ratio drops, you get a reduction in the fees that you can claim. So by the time you get down to uh, 250% collateralized, your fees have been reduced to uh, by 75%. So if, you know, again, assuming there's significant fees in the system to be claimed, uh, you will, uh, you'll be incentivized to burn NUSD to basically realign that collateralization ratio and keep that 500% ratio intact. Cool. And then how, how, I'm trying to think from a user flow perspective, like how automated or manual is this process? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, so at the moment, the, the process of maintaining your collateralization ratio is fairly manual. So, you know, you need to go to the Minter interface, you need to check it. We have a weekly, uh, or we're about to, we're about to go to a weekly fee period, which means that it's your collateralization ratio at the end of the fee period that determines the fees you can claim from that fee period. So you have a, a one-week window in order to make sure that your collateralization ratio is ideal. So you know if you were trying to, I guess, minimize the interactions that you had, you'd need to go and check your collateralization ratio probably once a week. And you know there's some things that we're doing to, to help with like alerts and things like that. But once a week, you need to check if your collateralization ratio is still within that ideal range of sort of 450 to 550%, then there's kind of no action. You can just you know, carry on. If your collateralization ratio is you know, significantly misaligned, uh, either up or down, you need to mint more uh, NUSD or you need to burn some. And so you know, the, the average user may need to interact with the system 20 times a year, something like that. And, and you know, again, the intent of this system is that it's an active management, right? You need to actively be managing the collateralization ratio. You're doing a job. You know, you're doing work and you're providing a service to NUSD users. And uh, that service, you know, is what's allowing you to, to be compensated. If you didn't have to do anything, then, you know, it would kind of just be this passive system, which is not the intent. It's, it's, intent, it's intended to be an active system that you need to maintain. Got it. And, and this is a good place to circle back to my earlier question, which was, so you 
this every time a transaction happens, a smart contract takes out transaction fees, right? How are these then distributed to the Haven token holders? So essentially the, the contract itself pulls out a transaction fee on every transfer and puts it into a fee pool. And at the end of the fee period, so at the moment the fee period is 30 days, but in the next couple of weeks it'll be shifted to seven days. So uh, once every seven days, you can go and claim your proportion of the fees from that fee period. You actually have six fee periods, so you've got six weeks to go and claim, and you can claim up to six weeks in, in arrears of fees, but you need to actually go to the Minter interface and you know, form a transaction to pull your fees out of the fee pool, which again are paid in NUSD. Interesting. Why not just make that automatic? Uh, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, the way that smart contracts work in Ethereum, it's a bit harder to sort of send transactions without a user's involvement. We, we've looked at a couple of things that we could potentially do. Yeah, so, so users are, are sort of responsible for engaging with the system. Um, you know, so we don't want this to be this kind of automated passive system. With all of that said, uh, something that we are, you know, we think is fairly likely, and we're talking to a number of um, people who are working on these kinds of things, is that we may have staking pools that arise. And so the idea would be that if you're a Haven holder, you would be able to sort of delegate the responsibility of maintaining the system to a third party, hopefully in a, a tr sort of trustless way. Um, you'd be able to kind of assign your uh, Haven tokens to another user and they would have authority within the smart contracts that they built to do things like maintain the collateralization ratio, burn NUSD, et cetera. And you would pay them a fee for basically operating a staking pool. So these are, this is a, a kind of business model that is starting to be explored by a number of people because of obviously the transition to uh, proof of stake that's occurring at the moment in, in networks like Ethereum. And you know, there's an expectation that people, sorry, I've got a fire truck that's about to go past me. So uh, maybe okay, but it might, might be a bit of a problem. Okay, that should be good. Um, yeah, so the, the idea with staking pools is that, you know, a user who uh, has tokens, um, and a really good example of this is a, a project called Rocket Pool, uh, which is building a staking service for um, Ethereum, Serenity, you know, when proof of stake goes live. So, so the idea is that you delegate your Ether to uh, the Rocket Pool contract, and then they will act as a validator for you and have, you know, validator pools and, and various other things. So, you know, it's a, it's a really kind of interesting process that's emerging and, and we think that that might be possible. Um, and so what you'll have is sort of professional staking pools that will be competing for uh, Haven users tokens in order to, you know, kind of optimize their, uh, their you know, system, which in some ways will be quite powerful because it'll mean that you've got this you know, highly dynamic competitive market, ideally, where people are trying to, to maintain the system as actively as possible to optimize for the fee yield. Got it. And then I have a question that might take us on a slightly different track. What are the, what's the importance of oracles for your stablecoin project or stablecoin projects in general? I mean, oracles are kind of critically important for almost every project. You know, if you want to interact with the real world in some way and you know so long as most of the value is still in the real world in inverted commas right and not in the crypto world that's going to be something that we just need to deal with so you know oracles are a way of passing information ideally trustlessly from the real world into the blockchain 
And so there's a, a whole bunch of projects that are working on trying to solve this problem because it's a very hard problem and, and it's not, I don't think, comprehensively solved yet. Although, you know, there's, there's people like Chainlink that have got good solutions. There's, there's you know, a few other uh, projects out there that, uh, that are doing you know, some interesting work on this, this space, bonding curves and various other things. So we need to, to have a feed of prices, for example, um, between the various uh, FX rates as we you know, migrate to our multi-currency system, our synthetic asset system, which is happening you know, in, in two or three weeks. We may have a feed of, or you know, up to 50 feeds of price information around these currency pairs that we need to bring into the blockchain. And so if, we are, if we're responsible for administering that system, that becomes a point of failure. And so what we are looking to do is partner with one or more projects that have a decentralized solution to incorporate that uh, into the, you know, we're talking to Chainlink at the moment, into our smart contract suite so that then that just removes that point of failure. And, you know, this is kind of one of the, the challenges of a, an early stage crypto project is that, you know, you're trying to approach the problem pragmatically, but minimize trust and, and risk. And so you've got these trade-offs that you need to make uh, in order to kind of stand up a system, you know, right now. And, and at the moment, one of the trade-offs for us is the Oracle system is, you know, more centralized than we would like. Interesting. And, and you also mentioned multi, uh, having a multi-currency peg. How would, yeah, that's right. What's, what's, the, what's the vision behind that? So if you, if you kind of step back and think about how we're implementing NUSD, the first stablecoin that we've released, you've essentially got this pool of collateral in the form of havens, right? And against that pool, you're issuing sort of a, a, a debt certificate, if you will, in the form of NUSD, right? Which says that any holder of NUSD has a claim of $1 worth of havens, essentially, right? That's what's ultimately backing the stablecoin itself. And so the extending that process, extending that process out from you know, USD to say AUD or euros or, or whatever, really just requires extending the Oracle system on one hand and allowing for people to hold a different representation of that uh, pool of collateral. Now, there's a whole bunch of challenges around how that's actually implemented in practice and, and how you manage the debt ratios and, and a whole bunch of other things. But, you know, fundamentally, it's the same process as we use for NUSD. So cool thing about that is that it doesn't just allow you to do fiat currencies. It allows you to do kind of any synthetic asset. So one of the things that we're launching initially is uh, an asset that will track an ounce of gold. So we're pulling in commodity prices and you'll be able to hold an asset that will track the price of an ounce of gold. And it's, you know, again, this purely synthetic asset that doesn't require you to be holding the physical gold. You're just, you've got a crypto asset that will track the price of gold, uh, which is, you know, uh, it's pretty interesting when you think about some of the possibilities that this can open up. You know, you can potentially have assets that track equities markets and, and all kinds of things uh, in the future. That, that's fascinating. And is that also being launched in a couple of weeks? Yeah, so, so the multi-currency system and open minting, which is, so at the moment we're kind of in a beta test. There's about 200 people that are whitelisted to use uh, the Minter interface and, and issue uh, NUSD, but that will open up in the next you know, two or three weeks where we're actually in audit at the moment. So the, the audit being done by um, Sigma Prime and ISIRO. And once that audit is complete, then you know, we'll be ready to deploy multi-currency uh, to mainnet. So we'll launch with five currencies in gold. Interesting. Okay. Our listeners will look forward to that. 
Uh, Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's getting pretty close. Getting yeah, pretty close. And then uh, I'd love to hear a bit more about your go-to-market strategy. I know that you've talked about trading as, as one way users are using NUSD. And then you also have a marketplace on your website. Uh, so we'd love if you could maybe explain what you're thinking behind uh, the marketplaces and how you're generally thinking about your user adoption strategy. Sure. So, I mean, the, the, the e-commerce store was really just kind of a proof of concept, right? To sort of illustrate for people that using crypto, if it's stable, is you know, quite a powerful use case. Uh, so that's, that's you know, again, not really something that we sort of expect to extend or, or grow, but it's, it's more just a proof of concept to sort of point to um, e-commerce businesses. The interesting thing for us in terms of go-to-market has been that launching with a USD-pegged stablecoin has made it kind of interesting because we're obviously not in a USD-denominated market. We're in Australia. And so all of our contacts and, you know, we've got a number of senior uh, staff who worked in, um, you know, payments businesses, retail, communications, et cetera, and, you know, some of the largest companies in Australia. When we talk to people at those businesses that we've, you know, worked with previously, they're like, but, you know, USD, like, what are we supposed to do with that, right? And so, you know, when we launch the AED-backed stablecoin, that's going to be a big, big kind of boost for us because, you know, now people... Uh, that kind of get AUD will be able to use that for kind of more real world use cases. The other thing that we're looking at is that, as I mentioned, I run another company called BlueShift, which is the largest fiat to crypto on ramp in Australia. Uh, so that will be a really easy way for us to allow people to go and purchase an AUD um, for AUD, right? So it'll be a one-to-one swap and get into the, the sort of crypto ecosystem that way. And then once they're holding an AED, they can do, you know, all kinds of stuff with it, whatever they, whatever they want. They can interact with, you know, other smart contract platforms. They can convert it into an USD if they want to do trading. There's a whole bunch of advantages to, uh, to you know, the way that we're kind of set that up. But it's been interesting because we've, we've kind of hamstrung ourselves a little bit in the, the early launch by, you know, having this asset that doesn't uh, kind of work in the market that we're operating in. Yeah. What's the fiat off-ramp right now for NUSD? So there, there kind of isn't one. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd need to go through, through I mean, pro- probably the easiest way would be to go through something like CoinSpot, uh, which is a, an exchange in Australia. Um, so if you, wanted to get, if you wanted to get out, you could go NUSD into Havens, and then there's a Haven market on CoinSpot, and then you could get money in your bank account. But, you know, it's, it's fairly high friction at the moment. So you know, it's obviously something that we're looking to uh, resolve and, and, you know, make as easy as possible to get those on-ramps and off-ramps set up. Cool. And then before we got online, you mentioned that Haven was an open source project. Could you explain how that works and what governance looks like? Sure. So, you know, we, we haven't set this up as a for-profit entity for, you know, a lot of reasons. One is we didn't want to create any kind of conflict between the foundation, which operates the network, and individuals that were kind of taking advantage of, uh, of the network and, and using it. And so we kind of see the, the network as more um, Red Hat Foundation or, or something like that, right? Where we've got this solution that we're building and we're advocating for, um, but we, you know, we don't charge for access to it. Uh, anyone can use it. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of this public good that's being created. And that's one of the things that I think is really powerful about token-based projects is that you can create that alignment where the token ownership is, is kind of where the incentives come from, uh, as opposed to 
through trying to capture value in, in the form of fees or, uh, or what have you into a private entity. Um, so anyone can join the network, anyone can leave the network, it's totally permissionless. And you know, once you're in the network, you have equal access and equal um, you know, rights to use the network. Anyone can build on it. We've got open APIs and, and a bunch of you know, SDKs and things like that that we're working on that'll make it as easy as possible for, for people to integrate. And unlike something like, say, PayPal, where you, know, you need to go through this whole process to become a PayPal merchant and get set up and you know, they need to worry about trust and fraud and all kinds of things, you can literally set up the, uh, you know, a wallet on your website and start accepting NUSD or NAUD or one of the other currencies. And you don't need to ask for permission uh, from anyone, including us. Great. Well, we're at the end of our podcast time. Uh, where can awesome. people find you on the internet or learn more about Haven? So the, probably the, the three best places are um, on our website, uh, which is uh, havven.io, uh, so haven.io. Also on our Twitter, which is um, havven underscore io. Uh, so that's, I'm sure you'll put these links in, but that's, that's another place. Um, but probably the best place if you want to kind of dig into the project and ask some hard questions and kind of you know, really understand it is on our Discord channel. Uh, so there's a link to Discord from our website. Uh, our community's there. We've got three or 4,000 people in the, in the Discord and there's always someone in there willing to answer questions and get into an interesting uh, conversation or debate. So that's probably the best place to, to go if you want to really dig into the project and understand it. Great. And I'll add those to the show notes. Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure having you, Ken. Thank you so much. 